Thanks, Dr. Trace. So, yeah, uh, always my favorite part of the year to preach. So, first Sunday in Advent. Of course, you know, it's not like uh, the order of days in Advent is something that's mandated by Scripture. It's tradition, but, you know, our hope has always been to uh, use this as a time to kind of prepare ourselves and think about the coming of Jesus into the world. So, uh, this week is Hope Week, and uh, we will start with... Oops. On computer. Uh, well, I'm going to do, by request of Beth, I'm going to do the songs again. So this Advent will be the first two chapters of Luke. Uh, so uh, we'll start with uh, Luke 1, 5 through 25. In the time of Herod, the king of Judea, there's a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go to the temple of the Lord and burn incense. When the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, but he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of parents to their children and disobedient uh, to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I've been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news, and now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed for so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. He realized he had se- they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When the time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion, The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Happy Advent. Uh, I don't know, there's no season of the year I like more. Not just, you know, I mean, Christmas is obviously awesome. But uh, to me, the idea that we celebrate something new coming into the world, that we celebrate uh, the birth of the incarnate Savior in the world and all the possibilities that it suggests for us is, now just kind of a gorgeous moment of theological reflection. So I'm going to do the songs again as a way of preparing our hearts for Christmas. But I'm going to you know, put aside John for a little bit and focus on hope, peace, joy, and love in Luke's gospel narrative. But I've I got to be honest, it's, uh, it's only three songs. Okay? It's actually a silence and then three songs. So today we're going to talk about the silence. The thing I want us to think about as we prepare for Christmas is, you know, I mean, obviously, who is Jesus and Uh, What does it mean for us to believe in Jesus? How is it that we come to know and see and understand Jesus? How is it that Jesus breaks through to us despite the different ways that we 
might resist it or, 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 or might not try to see the kind of miracle of God in the world. But I really want to spend this Advent focusing on two questions. So what is Christmas about is the obvious one, but I really want to dig in this year on who is it for. So I'm going to really focus in on who these silences and songs are for. If you've been around resurrection for very long, I think, I mean, Luke is probably the thing we've done more than any other gospel. Uh, it's uh, Luke Acts or Luke. And so, you know, you'll remember that the opener of Luke is addressed to, I don't know, an ideal persona, Theophilus, a person who loves God. And the stated um, kind of goal of the gospel is to give an orderly account. Now, I want you to think about that idea of an orderly account. Because each of the Gospels will basically tell the story of Jesus in a different way. And so, you know, as a result, Luke is really putting together the story in a way that's supposed to highlight or emphasize some stuff that I think is awfully important. And, you know, if you've spent enough time at Resurrection, you know, one of the shticks we love is that ancient texts are different from modern texts. They kind of work in very different ways. So, like, I don't know, if you've ever had to give a presentation or a talk or write something for your boss or something, everyone's got an executive summary, or you have like a abstract at the beginning of a law review article or whatever. So ancient folks didn't really do executive summaries. But what they did, <coughs> excuse me, is they loved to tell a little story at the beginning of a bigger story that laid out the terms of the whole story. So they loved to tell a small story that kind of gives you a hint, almost like an executive summary, about what the whole thing's about. Mm. It's kind of a preview, but more than that, it's like a way of cueing you into how you're supposed to read the specific facts in the story and what you're supposed to do with them. And that's why it feels like so many times for books in the Bible, they kind of start twice. Like Genesis feels like it starts twice. John feels kind of like it starts twice. And Luke, in its own way, kind of starts twice. It does it by talking about the silence, and then it does it by talking about these three songs. Well, there might be four. I don't know. It's hard to say. How do you, what do you, how do you know what a song is? So let's, let's start with Zechariah. It's not quite a song. Like I said, it's a silence. But it kind of starts out as the preview for the thing that begins the entirety of the Christmas story as told in Luke. So in the time of the Herod, the king of Judea, there's a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly, but they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Okay, so, so what do you take from that? If this is the small story that starts the big story. Well, first thing to take from it is it was like real bad time for Israel. You know, I mean, couldn't be worse probably. Israel was under Roman occupation. Uh, Jerusalem was kind of run by the Romans. Herod had been kind of placed as the Roman Vichy turncoat representative for uh, Caesar. And in order to consolidate political power, Herod had done all this stuff that kind of messed up the functioning of the temple as it had previously worked. So, like, you'll recall that the old way of thinking about who got to get into the temple was largely around family inheritance, but Herod felt like that was kind of politically dangerous, so he got rid of the idea that the people who were in the various elements of the priesthood did it because, you know, their dad was in it. And he got rid of all the kind of idea of family ties as constituting the priesthood. And he basically packed the temple, and especially like the folks who were in the temple every day and the religious authorities with people who were friendly to him or who he owed favors to. So the temple is basically like all uh, chock full of people who are doing 
the work of, of Caesar and, uh, and of Herod. And, you know, if you want to think about, like, why the religious authorities seem like they're so rough as they're kind of looked at in most of the Gospels, in large part it was because they were probably par- par- packed with these people who were loyal to Herod and Caesar. So Israel's in bad shape under uh, colonial power, etc. And I got to uh, be honest, like, uh, I had always kind of read this by thinking about how rad Zechariah was. Like, oh, man, Zechariah, he's, uh, he's tied to the line of, line of Aaron. He's, he's apparently in this priesthood that has a name or whatever. And, and, and kind of going through and, and rereading this, uh, one of the things is if you read Zechariah that way, I think you miss out a lot on what this little story inside the story is trying to tell. Because if you really think about Zechariah and who Zechariah was, there's all kinds of stuff that the audience would have picked up and that the story uses to talk about this question of who exactly Christmas is for. So, you know, uh, Herod had done this thing where he'd kind of wiped out all the religious authorities. Uh, He installed all these people who were kind of on his side, and that in and of itself would have been a huge kind of spiritual insult to Israel, because if you remember, as Israel thought about what it meant to be a nation, it was that you had your own territory, you had your own borders, and at the center of it was the temple, and in the center of the temple was God, and the king was kind of serving God as God was uh, supposed to be running the show, etc. Like, all that stuff that we have in the beginning of this gospel is just like the most profound vision of the fact that the world as it is, is not right. But you read in on Zechariah a little bit, and you know, this is the thing I got wrong too. Zechariah, he's kind of an outlier. Like, he's, he's not a super powerful dude. He and his wife, undoubtedly righteous in the sight of God, but they're childless. And if you remember from sermons past, people who were childless, especially if the wife was bare, as folks thought about that, that was like a punishment from God because those people must have done something wrong. Otherwise, they'd have kids. And as even adults today know, kids are kind of a way of carrying on your future, an extension of you, etc. So that in and of itself would have been seen as, you know, kind of a weird thing. But, you know, of course Elizabeth is affiliated with the tribe of Aaron, which is a big deal, no doubt about it. But if you dig in on the priestly division of Abijah, so it didn't, it's kind of, they're mentioned in First Chronicles as an order that's founded by King David. So, like, he was a man of war, he couldn't make the temple, so he divides everyone up into these 24 divisions. Abijah was the eight, their kind of primary call was to be the people who'd be in the temple, maybe in December, January, maybe during the Feast of Tabernacles, but they're also supposed to be the ones who were kind of charged with building the temple. But here's the thing. They were not the priests who were in the temple all year. So, you know, Zechariah is not a guy who would have been hanging out in Jerusalem. And that's why they kind of, this thing, like, you know, picking who gets to go in and light the incense by lots. I mean, in part, that was like spreading the glory a little bit. In part, that was like letting God choose who got to light the incense. We probably should have done lots before we did the candle. That'd be the right solution. (laughs) But he didn't live in Jerusalem. He lived outside of Jerusalem. So he only would have come to Jerusalem like two weeks a year. And the thing is, you know, uh, the priests that lived outside of Jerusalem, what would they have done? They mostly would have spent their time serving the community they were in. And then they would have gone in a couple of weeks a year for rotation. So if you want to figure out where a priest sits in the kind of social order, you got to ask, what's the community they were serving? So what's the community Zachariah was serving? Well, what do we know about it? We know, besides the fact that he was old and childless, uh, and you needed kids to run a profitable household, he didn't live in Jerusalem. He probably lived, he lived in a rural community. 
who lived in a place that was kind of poor. He, you know, I mean, one of the best ways of telling in the ancient world what your status is is look at the people who you're associated with, and he basically hangs out with folks who, for the most part, are dirt poor. They're tradespeople. They don't have a, they don't have a ton of dough. They're kind of near the bottom of the social ladder. And in fact, we also know that the Josephus, who is this historian who writes about the kind of uh, history of the Jewish people, wrote about the priests at the time. And basically, you know, Herod had this like totally baller palace that he made that was chock full of gold and all this stuff. And he largely did it by stealing tithe. So he'd steal the tithe to make this great palace. And basically, you know, Josephus says these priests that served in rural areas, like he even makes the point that many of them died of starvation because there was no tithe money for them and they had, you know, a, a job that they had to serve the people around them so they couldn't really be that economically productive. And so if you start to think about it, like Zachariah is not this baller guy who's associated with Aaron who's in this special uh, uh, kind of priestly unit of a BJ. He's like this childless, poor guy who lives in a context where he only has a sliver of his formal prestige and the way the text says it, it says something like what like he was righteous and committed but he it almost puts it out as if he's one of the few people left who is righteous and, and committed and uh, when Josephus writes about it and other folks write about it most people in the audience that heard this text would have thought about him and associated him with the hierodouloi which is not quite a, a priest but literally uh, would have been translated as a temple slave Okay, so Zachariah is this guy that's like intensely marginal in almost every way. Poor, childless, <laughs> victim of colonialism. He's in kind of rough shape. And this is the guy who wins the lottery. The guy who wins the lottery is a guy that I think in the text of Luke is kind of like standing in for an Israel that is a husk of its former self, but it's a kind of shadow of its former glory. He's basically a temple slave now who lives in some cow or I guess sheep town. He's old. He's hopeless. He has no future, no prospects. He has a barren wife. She's associated with the Aaronic line by marriage, but that's almost like a cruel reminder of what Israel is supposed to be, the hollow shell of, uh, of a people that are living under the rule of a tyrant and is a capricious installed stool pigeon. Like, things aren't going great when Zach wins the lottery. So, you know, he's sent to Jerusalem. The division was on duty, the, uh, the scripture says, and uh, he was serving as the priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were playing outside. So he wins the draw. He goes into the temple with everyone hanging out outside. And, you know, think about what this even means. Like the presence of God had not shown up in the temple for hundreds of years. And you'd imagine under those conditions it was less like a religious ceremony and more like going to watch the Christmas tree lighting at Durham or something. It was like a cultural spectacle in some ways more than a religious one, I bet. And here's the thing, the point of this telling of the story is that that's going to change. You know, the, the kind of emptiness of that celebration is going to be uh, redone. It's going to put the temple at the center and put the presence of God at the center. I mean, think about it. There's all kinds of ways that you can introduce the story of Jesus. The Gospels do it in so many different ways. Like, the Gospel of John basically does it by giving you a, I don't know, a, a philosophical account of the character of the Logos. That's how John starts it. Matthew starts it with a genealogy. Like, you know, that's kind of a history, but it's like the history of a guy instead of the history of a nation. And Mark, like, Mark's like an action story. Like, there's a prophecy about the wilderness, four verses later, boom, John is born, and then, like, by verse 12, Jesus is baptized, tempted, 
and by 16, he has disciples and the ministry has already begun. Like those are awfully different ways to start the gospel. But Luke starts it with this story about this childless old man who encounters God in a temple. Some of these people have suggested, and some of the scholars that look at this suggest, and it's really interesting to go through the details of it. I'll give you an example of one later, that the first two chapters of Luke are essentially rewriting big parts of the Old Testament. They have these strong connections with the Deuteronomistic history. They have these strong connections with the Chronicles. They have strong connections with the prophetic tradition. And, you know, you've heard me do this shtick before on Luke, that it's essentially like Jesus redoing Israel I like Luke's kind of opening is this almost cinematically beautiful shtick. There's this old, poor, rural, childless scion of a dead priestly order who goes to a temple to do what his people have been doing for a hundred years. And, you know, I imagine he expected the same outcome that people like him had gotten for the first few hundred years. And you can imagine him, I don't know, going into the temple and standing beside the altar and trying to find the lighter to light the incense and the scoutmaster gives him the lighter, and then they have this moment of melancholic awkwardness where he lights the incense and he thinks, man, what was it like when the presence of Yahweh was here? And then he just said, oh, I'm going to probably roll back down the stairs and say hey to the people. That's the beautiful part about this story. Israel is about to be reawakened. Israel is about to be remade. Israel is about to be redefined. Verse 11. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense, when Zechariah Siam was startled and gripped with fear, the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, your prayers have been heard. Now this is the first appearance of the Lord or any kind of you know, subset of the Lord or representative of the Lord in a long, long, long time. And it's so much that Zechariah, this trained priest, is afraid. And here's the detail I absolutely love about it. What, is, what does Gabriel say to him? Your prayers have been heard. You will have a child. Now think about it, like when the priests went into the temple and prayed, they're not praying like, dear Lord, can you help me with this, and can you help me with this, and can you help me with this? They're doing liturgical prayer. Like they're reading the stuff they're supposed to read. What I love about that detail is it demonstrates that Zechariah was a guy who wasn't only praying in the temple, but he was kind of living a life of prayer where he's consistently relating to God and saying things to God and talking to God. And true to form, this guy who has a life of prayer is about you know, more than going through the liturgical motions, is about to be totally surprised by the encounter and the breaking in of God into his life. Look at 13. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. Now look, that's a big ask for a guy who has no kids. Like the naming convention in that culture was you picked a kid who kind of continued the family line. So to name the kid John would have been a sacrifice of like the highest order. But that idea of new names is like the whole theme of Luke in some ways, isn't it? Zechariah, the first effective priest in hundreds of years, will have a son who is a prophet. And that son will have a new and different name, John. He will announce the coming of the Lord and the building of a new Israel and a new temple. And that new Israel and new temple will have a new name too. Jesus. And because John announces that, he will be able to, well, do all kinds of stuff to preview uh, a theme from a couple of weeks now. Look at verse 14. He'll be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for it will be great in the sight of the Lord. 
He is never to take wine or other fermented drink. He'll be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He'll bring back the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit of power and Elijah to turn the hearts of parents towards their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make a people prepared for the Lord. John is and will be the bearer of a new advent, a new breaking into the world of God in a new form who will remake the temple, who will remake the church, and who will make the world anew who will look at all of us in our unbelief, in our misunderstanding, in our inability to see in the kind of repetitive character of our lives and the repetitive character of the things that we encounter. And he declares the breaking in of something new that not only gives God a new name, it gives us a new name and makes all things different. That allows the birth of something new into the world in the person of Jesus Christ that is not only the coming of God, but is also a promise to a world to be made different. I mean, Zechariah was righteous, there's no doubt, but Zechariah is also this kind of beautiful representation of Israel's faithful remnant. He believes, I mean, he's startled at first, I guess he sort of believes, but then he has to question. He questions, I don't know, if a divine personage pops up next to you and tells you that something's going to happen, my tendency, I'd like to hope, would be to like, oh, that sounds pretty good. You seem like a divine personage, but Zechariah, he has some issues with it because he's lived this life over and over and over where, of course, he trusts and loves and does what he's supposed to do, but he's never seen results from it. So he asked the angel in verse 19, how can I be sure of this? I'm old. My wife is well along in years. And the angel says to him, I am Gabriel, God's strength. I will stand in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and will not be able to speak until this day happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Over and over and over over the next couple weeks, we're going to see people who see something completely incomprehensible and their response is to break into song. Their response is to so be moved by an encounter with the new possibility of God, with the person of Jesus, with the coming of the Lord, that they won't be able to deal with it in kind of straightforward, normal narrative terms. They'll have to sing because it's the only way poetically to frame the power and the majesty and the beauty and the incomprehensibility of the thing that is coming to them. And as a representative for stand-in for the old but faithful Israel, Zechariah, he doesn't break into song, he just doesn't speak anymore. And if you look at the translations of the text, they actually say uh, that, that, that a lot of them imply that he was like struck not only dumb but deaf. The word here that's used suggests that he's both struck speechless and that he cannot hear. Look, lots of folks see this, this kind of theme of speaking, this theme of being able, of being struck dumb, this theme of kind of being uh, uh, struck deaf as a callback to what? Isaiah 6. And remember about Isaiah 6, it's a rewriting of that crucial moment in the history of Israel after King Uzziah dies when Isaiah is commissioned. So if you look at Isaiah 6, we can read some chunks of it. 6.1, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on the high and lofty throne. Seraphim cried out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. All the earth is filled with his glory. At the sound of that cry, the frame of the door shook. The house is filled with smoke. And then I said, woe is me. I am doomed. I am a man of unclean lips, living among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Now, most of the modern interpreters in the rabbinic commentary that talk about that read this lament. And they talk about the idea of unclean lips as not only a silencing, but an inability to hear. But just like Zechariah, an angel comes to Isaiah and says, what? The seraphim flew to me. This is verse 6. 
Holding an ember which he had taken with tongs from the altar, he touched my mouth with it. See, he said, now that this has touched your lips, your wickedness is removed, your sin is purged. Then he hears the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Here I am, I said, send me. And God said, go tell these people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people callous, their eyes dull and close their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand and turn and be healed. Send me. Send me to open their eyes. Send me to open their ears. Send me to open the mouths of God's people. All of us live in a context where sometimes it seems like the world is so routinely either overwhelming or boring or sad or difficult or all the different things that we all know from living in the context of habit, from living in the context of things that seem over and over and over that we're unable to break out of or think out of or be different. But the promise of Christmas, the hope of Christmas is that amidst our silence in the face of God, we will speak again. Amidst not hearing his voice, we will hear again. And when the silence breaks and the one who is sent comes, the songs of Advent will spill out of every person who encounters the person of Jesus, even a baby in a womb filled with the Holy Spirit. After all, look, that's the beauty and the character of hope. Gabriel's right. Elizabeth is pregnant. God has shown her impossible favor. God has done an incalculable miracle in the context of the worst and most unimaginably bad times. And yet, out of that silence, a song of hope will spring. Out of that silence, the word will be spoken. Out of that lack of understanding and inability to see and connect, we will be made right. Our hearts will be made open and Jesus will come to us. Elizabeth has it right, even if Zachariah can't talk. The Lord has done this for me, and this day he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from the people. God will do the same for us. That is the beauty and the hope of Christmas. Amen. Questions or talk?